As you know, we've been going through this for quite some time. This is part number 23. We've been traversing through both of these books and trying to focus on exactly what the historian would have us see, which is namely, I think, um, some reasons why uh, God's people are in exile. If you remember, uh, both of these books are written to exiled Israelites, and he's sort of showing them the trajectory, if you will, of why they are where they are now. And really clearly, we've been able to see that almost at every turn, God's truth, God's word has been rejected. It's almost been stiff-armed by almost every king, uh, especially even the king that had so much going for him, King Solomon. He himself was one that led and opened the door, so to speak, for uh, false religions and paganism and all sorts of uh, sodomies to come in and ruin what God had preserved through his people and through his word. That's sort of where we are now, as centuries later, we are here examining in Second Kings sort of the continuation of the very bad legacy of King Ahab. Last or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at King Ahaziah in chapter 1 and his fall, very ignominious fall from grace. But now we return in chapter 2 to uh, both of these prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And here in chapter 2, and at least in the, actually the whole chapter, all of chapter 2, I would say, is concerned with one predominant thing, which is the succession of Elisha after Elijah's departure. You might know this from verse 1. Verse 1 is, I would say, sort of just the thesis statement, if you will, of the whole chapter. It kind of colors the way in which we ought to understand chapter 2. As the historian says, that it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So they're traversing because of this imminent prophecy that has just been declared regarding his departure. And really, all the way through, down through verse 25, which we'll get to next week, we see this theme carried through in this chapter as sort of a changing of the guard, so to speak. But I think even more than that, even more than this sort of uh, Elisha succeeding Elijah, there's a lot more going on here, especially in the first 18 verses, which is what I want to focus on this morning. But I think in verses 1 through 18, the historian of this book gives us an incredible glimpse of what it looks like to be one of God's disciples. As you might know, we were first introduced to Elisha back at the end of 1 Kings chapter 19. And there he was, uh, he received that amazing symbol of Elijah putting his mantle over his shoulders. And then we see that moment where he runs and follows after his new teacher, Elijah. And I think there's some times in which we can see Elisha's life and pretend as though it's so foreign to us. If you flip through, you can flip through. It's not spoiling anything. You can see the miracles that Elisha is able to uh, sort of uh, see and perform and execute in his day. And there's lots of them, which we'll get to. His life was full of the miraculous. But even still, Elisha himself was lived a life that was not as foreign as we might presume. As I've said before, the Old Testament people that fill this book of the Bible are are not that ancient. They're not so prehistoric. They are humans like you and like me. And they have a lot of connecting points to where we are now. And I would say that very clearly. Turn with me really quick to Matthew chapter 7. Because I think that this is a verse which gives us a clear indication of what we're going to see happen in this particular chapter. 
Matthew 7 verse 13. And Jesus Christ in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Gives this really powerful and indicative couple of verses. Which tell us what it looks like to be a disciple. Notice he says in verse 13 of chapter 7. Enter ye. At the straight gate or the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. This sort of dichotomy, this juxtaposition between the narrow and the broad ways, ones of which is a disciple of Jesus, obviously, and the others of which are those who would say they don't believe in this king of kings, is, I think, here pictured for us very clearly in the life of Elisha. So this morning, I want us to examine these 18 verses, and there's going to be three lessons that I think demonstrate for us what it looks like and what it means to represent the Lord along life's narrow way, we could say. The first lesson this morning is a lesson about devotion. A lesson about devotion. Notice in verse 3, as these sons of the prophets, these other students of prophecy here, approach Elisha with some hurtful words. And the sons of the prophets, verse 3, that were at Bethel, came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master uh, from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. Of course, obviously, I think what this indicates is that this, this prophecy from verse 1 is, is somewhat of a public decree. It's sort of common knowledge among the students of the prophets as they are going about. Everyone knows that Elijah's time is, is about to come to an end. And although this information was well known, Elisha, of course, here is, although he's well aware of, of this prophecy, this impending departure of his beloved teacher, that doesn't mean he's ready necessarily to accept it. And I think you can see that in his words. He's not ready necessarily to contemplate the notion of his teacher, Elijah, departing and leaving his presence. And yet, nevertheless, despite these words, notice in verses 2 down through verse 6 that constantly and repeatedly, what does Elisha prove and what does Elisha show us? He shows us that he is not at all willing to entertain the notion of leaving his master's side. Verse 2, and Elijah and Elisha, or excuse me, and Elijah, Elijah said unto Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee. For the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were there at Bethel came forth to Elisha, as we read. And he said, Hold ye your peace. In verse 4, And Elijah said unto him, said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee. For the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he gives them the same response. As the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. The sons of the prophets, these peers, these contemporary prophets of Elisha, they come and give him the same sort of uh, sort of commotion and words in verse 5. And they, they remind him again that his teacher is about to be taken away. And he gives them the same response. Yes, of course, I know this. Hold your peace. And in verse 6 again, Elijah said unto him, Terry, here, I pray thee. For the Lord hath sent me to the Jordan. And he, that is Elisha, said, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. This to me speaks so clearly of the devotion with which that uh, Elisha was so committed. 
So committed not just to his master, not just to his teacher, Elijah, this eminent prophet who had done so much and seen so much uh, good. And yes, even sometimes seen so much uh, rebellion come at his words. What I think we see here is this amazing scene of devotion by Elisha. In this trio of scenes. This trio of, of, of commands that he's given by his master to stay behind. And yet even still he says, no, I will not leave your side. I've thought a lot about this because I've tried to determine if there's a way we can uh, understand perhaps why Elijah would stay to, say to his students, stay here, stay behind. And it's not really in the text. We can surmise, we can offer some conjecture, but I think clearly that proves a little bit fruitless. And I think it doesn't even matter because I think regardless of what Elijah would say to his student, I think Elijah would respond the same way. I will not leave thee. Regardless of what his peers were saying to him, regardless of what his friends were trying to convince him of, that, you know, following Elijah means following this outdated, outmoded prophet who's so antediluvian, he's so past his prime, he is so uh, sort of outdated that now you have to, we have to find somewhere else to go, that even though he's being convinced or tried to, tempted to leave his master's side, he does not. He's resolutely devoted to his teacher, Elijah, and I would say even more to his God, Yahweh. Because you notice every single time that he reaffirms his devotion to Elijah, he prefaces it with that wonderful phrase, as the Lord liveth, as Yahweh is still enthroned, as Yahweh is still the one true and only God of Israel, I will not leave you. I think this pattern that we see of three different occasions in which he is recommitting, reaffirming his devotion to his master. It it stood out to me as I was studying that Elisha is almost the anti-Peter. If you remember Peter in Mark chapter 14, you remember that amazing scene where Jesus is taken before the leaders and he's being tried, he's being falsely condemned and falsely judged for these blasphemies that they say that he is committed And what is Peter doing? (laughs) He's outside and he's denying association with his Lord, with his master, three times. Instead of like Elisha, who reaffirms his devotion. Actually, we have Peter in that holiday seeing his master from afar off, denying that he knows him, denying even having anything to do with him during his teacher's hour of need. And how contrast is that with Elisha Hero, who reaffirms in the waning hours of his teacher's life his association with him. I will not leave you, he says. Again, his devotion, his commitment to the calling that God had put on him, to that with, with which he had seen Elijah perform and that he knew that he was about to succeed him in. He remains undeterred by it all. All of those who would try and claim his life, claim his attention, he says, no, I am following the Lord. Which I think is a signal mark of all of those who would say that they are God's disciples. You know, God often, maybe perhaps not like Elisha here in this text, but I can think we could say, and we can relate to Elisha in one sense, in that that God often brings us to places that we did not expect to go. 
If you think about your life now, perhaps you can, maybe you've planned it out so much so that you can say, I'm exactly where I thought I would be five years ago. If you can say that, good on you. (laughs) But I think most of us can say that that's not true how it works. Where you were in high school and you were giving these accounts of all the things that you would like to do and accomplish. And yet we can look back on our high school days and say, I'm way far away from that. And some of you can say, thank goodness for it. Some of us may perhaps have other answers for that. But I would say, regardless of where we are, life brings us to unexpected roads. And I think all along the way, along those unexpected pathways by which we are brought by the Lord, we are allowed and we are made to follow him, just like Elisha here, to, I would say, give fresh opportunity to demonstrate our devotion. Yes, even, and I would say especially through the unexpected, through the unforeseen, through those things that come about that are unplanned, that they are are not the things that we expected to occur. Maybe perhaps think about your present circumstances this very morning. Maybe, maybe like Elisha, you've already felt the pressure to retreat from following God in this particular moment. A chorus of verses perhaps are screaming or whispering in your ear saying, you're wasting your time, you're following something that's old and irrelevant and outdated. It has some really scandalous, messed up stories in this book called the Bible, and you're so weird for following it. You're you're following this ancient God, this old-timey religion that has no bearing on today. Might as well move on to something else, much like Elisha himself was being tempted to do. And I would say, if you have not yet, I would say there's coming a day when you'll be forced to stand in the face of slander because of your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what you would say in that moment? I have. <laughs> I've tried to think about those who would come and say me, recant of your belief in Jesus, of your belief in the harsh truths of Scripture, or we will force you to some such gulag or or force you to lose your life. And I often quiver at that notion because I don't know if I could demonstrate the devotion that Elisha demonstrates here. What will you say when that day comes? When you are asked, do you know him like Peter did? (laughs) Do you know this one? Aren't you familiar with him? Aren't you one who was with him all along those days? What will you say when that comes? I pray with all that's in me that my answer would be exactly as Elisha's. As the Lord liveth, (laughs) I will not leave thee. You see, this devotion, I would say, is an expression of our faith. It's an expression of that with which we made so long ago. Maybe you would say, I've been saved since I was five. Maybe you would say, I've been saved since I was 11. Regardless, that faith that is in you, that Jesus is your king and he's your savior, is demonstrated by your devotion to his word and his truth. May we, this morning, demonstrate our devotion similarly to Elisha's. That up and up and down the winding roads of our lives, the, the unexpected places that God brings us, it gives us just another stage, another opportunity to say, I will not leave you. I'm not 
reneging on my promise to follow you, God. I'm not retreating from your word. Yes, even when the pressure is mounting and the voices are speaking into our ears and they're trying to convince us of something other than the truth, we may we, I say, pray as Elisha does. I will not leave thee. A lesson about devotion, but secondly this morning, a lesson about wisdom. A lesson about wisdom. Notice in verse 8, as Elisha and Elijah, they're brought to the Jordan River. Elisha has seemingly passed these tests of what it means to be a student of this eminent prophet. And he comes with him to the banks of the Jordan River. Which you might imagine and might know is a place of very rich meaning for the people of Israel. Usually it's a scene of great and momentous movings of God. Think about Joshua chapters 3 and 4. Where there's a similar scene of the Jordan River being crossed. But regardless here, we come to this scene and there's an audience, as it says there in verse 7, of 50 men of the sons of the prophets. And they're standing afar off, viewing the scene, seeing what perhaps might happen between these two prophets. And it says in verse 8, And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they they too went over on dry ground. Amazing moment. Elijah takes off his coat, wraps it up, and whips the water. And just like it did in the days of Moses, just like it did in the days of Joshua, back in Joshua chapter 3, the waters divide. They part, forming two barriers beside the men. And they're not walking across on mud. They're not sludging through this gross dirt riverbed. They're actually walking across, as it says, on dry ground. A miracle, obviously, proving and evidencing Yahweh in their midst. The power of the living God was here in this moment. And we see that the prophets, the sons of the prophets, I imagine, were enthralled. It doesn't record the reaction to this particular moment. It actually records their reaction all the way in verse 15 after Elisha does the same thing. But I wonder what they thought. I wonder if their minds went back To Moses. Went back to Joshua. And realized the movement of God in this moment. Or did they just marvel at Elijah himself? Look at that miracle man. Look at what he can do. I'm not sure. Although I think we'll get an answer soon. But regardless, the Jordan, verse 9, gives our two men a moment of somewhat seclusion. They're by themselves on the opposite side of the Jordan River. And it says in verse 9, it came to pass when they were gone over. Elijah said unto Elisha, ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. A very generous offering. You can no doubt imagine what Elisha might ask for. Perhaps he's thinking about some such book, some such uh, sort of trinket or, or uh, something that he knows is, has been very important to Elijah's ministry. Something that he can look to and say, I can carry on this mantle. But instead he asks for something far more weighty. Notice what he says. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. 
Instead of, instead of something tangible, he says, let a double portion of thy spirit, of thy heart, of that which is in you, may that be on me. Which produces a very curious response. Notice verse 10. And he, that is Elijah, said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but not... It shall not, but if not, it shall not be so. I find this response interesting because Elijah says here, it's a hard thing that you've asked for. Now, uh, I would say clearly that what he's talking about, this hard thing, literally means the office in which Elisha is going to eventually fill. This hard thing is exactly the assignment of being Yahweh's prophet. He's not talking about this this idea of conferring his spirit being hard. He's actually referring to the office in which Elisha would one day step into. The voice of Yahweh, that's what you're stepping into, Elisha. You're representing Yahweh, the living God, the one true God of Israel, as his prophetic voice. That's the hard thing that lies in front of you. So he says, you've asked, you've answered the call for a very hard assignment. Israel, as we've seen, perhaps you can remember, if you can. All of the chapters we've examined so far in the days of Elijah from chapter 17 onwards. And all of the the vast and great rebellions that have occurred. And those who have rejected the Lord and rejected the Lord and rejected the Lord. Israel is not in a good state of affairs in terms of their religion. Baal, as you know, Baal is still ruling their hearts. He's, his liturgies, his gross liturgies are still filling the streets. Paganism is still rife throughout all of Israel. Such is the hard thing that was in front of Elisha. I think Elisha knew it too. He knew that stepping into this role as representing the living God was not going to be some comfy, cozy gig. It's not for those who are faint of heart. He, like Elijah, would have to stand in the face of criminally evil kings and speak words of truth. Speak words of reprimanding. Speak words which would sound coarse and coercive. And yet he was there uh, on this errand from Yahweh himself. And I think he understood that. And I think that's why he's making this request. Let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me, he says. I think it's a request that comes out of his own weakness. That comes out of his own inadequacy. Because Elisha, I think, knew. He knew that this burden of representing God as his disciple, as a disciple of Elijah, but more accurately a disciple of Yahweh. This burden was not one that he could shoulder in his own strength. He could not carry this task by himself. So he asked for the most needful, the most necessary thing. He asked for the only thing that I think he understood and perceived had sustained his teacher for all those long years of ministry. The spirit that was inside of him. And I think in this way he, Elisha does, bears witness to a wisdom that's beyond him. 
We might say a heavenly wisdom. You know, you and I, we're not in the days of Elisha, but we face a similarly, similarly hard thing in front of us all. Right now, if you are in this room and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you like it or not, you are a disciple of God. You are enlisted in the army of God, as it says in that beloved hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. And here this morning, you have a calling in front of you. A calling that has been given to you by this one true living God. And that is to represent Him wherever you are. I'm not going to sing it. Matt Shively didn't sing his kid's song in Sunday school. So I'm not going to sing my kid's song right now. But you know that old song, Be a Missionary Every Day? Clap, clap, clap. That's very true of us all. Being a missionary is exactly, I think, what Elisha, what was in front of Elisha. That regardless of where he was brought to, evidencing his devotion by trusting himself to a heavenly wisdom. A wisdom that was beyond him, knowing that this word is true and that this God is alive. When you have those things buried in your heart, everything is different. I say that's very true. If Jesus is alive, everything is different. This is a tangent, but it's okay. If the resurrection is true, everything is changed. Everything is is different now. And we can boldly and, yes, mightily proclaim the truth of God. Because we know, yes, friends, that the resurrection is true. Jesus is not in the grave. He walked out of it. He's conquered all of that death. And he's conquered all of that sin. And now we can stand, yes, in the faces of governors or kings or leaders or even our coworkers, even our friends and our neighbors, and say this word is true. His grace is real and his forgiveness is is for you. We can stand and make those words come out of our lips and not be ashamed because it's true. It's the truth of the living God. But it's a hard thing, I know. I I won't ask you to raise your hand how many of you have witnessed to your coworkers recently or talked with your uh, perhaps distant relatives. About what it means to believe in the Bible. About what it means to speak this truth. And more than to speak it, but to live it. You and I have been called to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that is diametrically opposed to him. They want nothing to do with this book. And I would say there's no more necessary thing. In our present day. Than what Elijah himself asked for. A double portion of thy spirit. That's what's needed. In this moment of 2021. Leading into 2022. What's needed by, uh, by everyone. Is a host of sinners. Who've resigned themselves. To a wisdom that's beyond them. Who've said, I don't have the wisdom in my own rights to get along or get by. But I entrust myself to a wisdom that says, by faith I am forgiven. And by faith I'm forgiven by a king who rose from the dead. That's a wisdom that's beyond us. 
the wisdom that comes from heaven. And I say that's exactly what's needed in this very hour. Disciples who entrust themselves to the wisdom that is from the Lord himself. I would say that's what's needed in the church. That's what's needed in all of the congregations that fill this nation. We are desperate for hearts that evidence this wisdom by fearing the Lord above all else. And you know, we can go to several scriptures that say that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what's needed for all these harsh and fierce realities that might come in front of us. We've, I've said that for months perhaps, but I don't know what the future holds. <laughs> no one does, and if they pretend that they do, they're pulling your leg. What's needed for right now is a wisdom that is outside of us. A wisdom that says there's someone in control. There's someone whose hands are underneath the world, who sustain it, who keep it in motion, who keeps all living things happening according to their course. As it says in Acts, the one in whom all things move and live and have their being. My friends, if we are disciples of the Lord Jesus this morning, we entrust our lives to a wisdom that is beyond us. And I'm so thankful for that. So thankful that there's this wisdom that is outside of us and that we continually devote ourselves to it, knowing that it is true and that it is real. Which brings me lastly, a lesson about devotion, a lesson about wisdom, and lastly, a lesson about power. A lesson about power. Verse 11 is a decisive scene. If you're in 2 Kings 2 still, we have that moment when Elijah is brought into heaven by a whirlwind. And it came to pass as they still went on, verse 11, and talked that, Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. It's a decisive moment for uh, Elisha personally. He's losing his teacher. And also, I would say it's a decisive moment for Israel naturally. They're losing this voice of God from right out of their midst. And we see Elisha's response in verse 12. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his clothes and rent them in two pieces. He's mourning. Very indeed, he's grieving out loud in such deep anguish at the sight of his father, his spiritual father being raptured right out of his sight. It's indicative, I think, of their relationship, which was obviously clearly more than just student and teacher. They were father and son. And I think he knows that perhaps this is by the Lord, but that it doesn't erase the grief that he feels from no longer being in the presence of his beloved teacher. But while Elisha lost a father, Israel lost, I would say, we can say this, their horsemen. Again, notice verse 12. That phrase, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. It's a phrase that's actually in reference to Elijah himself, I do believe. 
And I would say that this is sort of the office that Elijah has been filling. He is, we could say, Israel's rider. The champion of the defense of God's truth. The one who mans, we could say, the chariot of God's word in order to push back those who would try and assault it. This is what Elijah has stood for. He stood for the defense of Yahweh. He stood in the gap for the truth. As the appointed voice of the living God amongst his people. For years he's done that. For years he stood in that office and made claims and made bold proclamations. And called down fire from heaven to destroy and dismantle the false realities of paganism. And now we have this question. Elijah's been snatched up. Who would keep watch over Yahweh's people now? Who would be Israel's chariot? Who would man the chariot of God's word as Israel's rider? Who would take up that mantle? The obvious answer I think is Elisha. But I don't think that that's necessarily confirmed by some of those in this text. Such I think is what is perplexing the sons of the prophets. Notice all the way down. Jump down to verse 16. And they said unto him, unto Elisha. Behold now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go we pray thee and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up. And cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said we shall not send. And when they urged him. Till he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. Interesting scene. As these sons of the prophets were so convinced that this latest disappearance of Elijah was just one of the many that that were among his life in the past. Obviously they presume that God has just snatched up Elijah and cast him into some other mountain. So we gotta go find him. We gotta go, we gotta go find where Elisha, we gotta find our master, we gotta find Israel's rider. You could sense their sort of urgency in their words. Let us go. Let's get 50 men together. Let's go find him. This missing in action prophet. And you can sense Elisha's frustration, that phrase, and when they urged him till he was ashamed. <laughs> They're basically annoying the fire out of him until he gives them what they want. (laughs) They're poking, they're prodding, please let us send, please let us send, please let us send out these men. And finally, he's so disappointed in them that he says, fine, go. Go have at it. Search all of the countryside while you're at it. (laughs) And of course they do, and they report back three days later, and lo and behold, they find nothing. We found him not. And I can imagine Elijah a little bit vehemently saying, of course you didn't. He's not here. I told you that. You see, this was the end of an era. Elijah being snatched and translated into glory was the end of an era. And yet for the sons of the prophets here, they couldn't see anything beyond it but a grim and difficult future. We need Elijah here in our midst. How can we go on when our teacher is gone? When our mentor has been taken from us? What do we do now? 
And I think that's why Elisha is disappointed. Which is literally what that word ashamed means there in verse 17. Because they had moved on so quickly. They had moved on so quickly to, and, and failed to see that yes, Elijah might have been gone. But the Lord God of Elijah was still very much in their midst. Still very much alive. Still very much working. Still very much moving in and for them. Jump back up to verse 13. Notice. Elisha took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. When the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. The spirit of Elijah is on this one, Elisha. And whom is serving the God of all things? And yes, in every way here in the scene, Elisha is taking up the mantle of his dear master. He took his place. And in fact, I won't go there for sake of time this morning. But if you read 2 Kings 13 verse 14. Elisha has even taken the role as the rider of Israel. As Elisha on his deathbed is called the very same thing. The chariot of Israel. All of which is confirmed I think by this very seminal moment. Of him parting the waters just exactly as his predecessor did. Taking the mantle, striking the water, and the waters are, are divided. And he walks across on dry ground as if to say, the Lord God of Elijah is right here in me. You can see in verse 15 as we read, the sons of the prophets were enthralled. They were enamored by this scene. And yet how quickly we notice they are, are, are moving on and perhaps forgetting or perhaps still clinging to what Elijah represented. As even after they make this claim the spirit of Elijah is resting on this one. They move on. We have to find him. You see I think what's occurring in this moment is something I think which still occurs and I would say still jeopardizes some in the Christian faith even to this day. You know, our society is enamored by names. Famous names. Names that have a lot of notoriety. We are enamored, I would say, and entertained by the spectacle of so quote-unquote VIPs, very important people. And they're important because they, we say they're important, but they haven't really done anything important with their lives. But they're important because, because of course they're important. News cycles are driven by this. <laughs> Celebrity rumors and gossips and, and all of these uh, sort of the, the dark and shadowy stories of these uh, famous people and these famous personalities. So much so they would say that our culture is hanging upon the words of Hollywood. Hanging on their every word hoping that they give us some sort of joy. <laughs> I'm not going to belabor that point, but I just came to my mind when in the midst of the pandemic and how much hullabaloo was made about all of those celebrities singing that song, Imagine. It was a, they didn't sing very well, but that's beside the point. It was just kind of funny to me how that was such a big deal and how it was made into something that it wasn't. 
I would say, I have much better joy to give them in the midst of a pandemic if they would just read this book called the Bible, but regardless. I would say sometimes the church has fallen into something similar. The church falls victim to something similar in the sense that we like to exalt VIPs. If you go and look at church history, there are a number of ministers and preachers who've gained widespread attention, acclaim, and, 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 and notoriety in years past, and all well and good in some cases. But I think it lends itself to this idea that we as churchgoers can hang on these celebrity pastors and every words that they say, and that their words are somehow more important than someone else's. And then when they fall away, or perhaps when they pass away, what do we do? This voice that we have lifted up is now gone. I think there's a tendency sometimes that assumes that with so-and-so's departure, that God's work will inherently be more difficult. You know, I was thinking about this in light of another reformer. Last week we preached on Martin Luther. But there was another reformer that, of course, is just as famous, perhaps if not more than Luther. His name is John Calvin, who did much of his work in Geneva. And when he was at his, on his deathbed in the year 1564, after years of ministry and preaching and writing and commentating and, yes, protesting those who would say otherwise than what the truth of the scripture says, he's on his deathbed. And the students of his are surrounding him after he's been ravaged by illness after illness. His body is frail and thin and sickly. Yet this very revered, very celebrated reformer, John Calvin, insisted that he not be idolized. He didn't want anything or any attention brought to himself, yes, even at his own funeral. In fact, his funeral was preceded by no procession to the gravesite. And yes, even still to this day, I believe, his grave is not marked. He didn't want his grave marked. He didn't want any celebration. He didn't want to have a memorial to him. I think it's because he knew. He knew that God's work would not stop when John Calvin stopped breathing. The truth of God and the power of God was not confined to this particular moment of history. And yes, when which we can see the power of God at work through reformers standing up to the churches. And saying, this is the truth of God. I would say that he knew that that work would not stop with him. So he was insistent, insistent that his students were aware of that. And they would know that God's truth is not confined to a specific era of history. And neither is his power. The preacher Alexander McLaren says, The God of yesterday is the God of today. The God who we serve in this moment, in 2021, has not changed since the days of Elisha. Can you believe that? He's the same God. The same Yahweh. The same Lord over all things. Who lives and rules and reigns. And he's the one who is ruling, yes, even in this day. And yes, even despite all of those years, those millennia of history that have passed. His power has never once been impeded. It's never once been stopped. It's never once been hindered. We rightly say that the God of Moses is the God of Elijah, is the God of Elisha, is the God of Paul, is the God of John Calvin, is the God of Billy Graham, is the God of this hour. 
His power is just as true now as it was then. I think that's hard to get in our minds sometimes. I know it is for me because we, we look back at history and we see the great awakenings and the reformations and the pouring out of God's power at Pentecost. And we can say, I wish I lived in that time. Have you ever thought that? Man, it would have been so easy to be uh, one of God's people if I were just living in that era. <laughs> Which, let me just burst your bubble, that's a false thinking. There's never been a golden age for God's people to live as God's people. There's never been an ideal moment of history in which those who would say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there was never an ideal time for that. You could just go to Pentecost and think about just a few years later when Paul and others who had witnessed all of those amazing events throughout the history of the book of Acts, and we could say that they were persecuted under Rome uh, by Emperor Nero. Not in an ideal time, perhaps, to be a Christian who, for your faith, could be sw- uh, taken into, accosted into the Colosseum and be eaten alive because you said, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. All that, I just mean to say this that there's never been an ideal moment of history to be God's disciple. But despite that, God's wisdom and power have never been abated by any moment of history. And they are just as true now as they were then. And that you, yes, right now, in this hour, can devote yourself to the infinite wisdom and everlasting power of the one true God. And that's what it means to be his disciple. That's what it means to represent him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be his ambassador. You're resigning yourself to a power and a wisdom that is beyond you. Knowing that there's one who is better. One who is truer. One who is stronger. One who has all things considered. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. This is that God. The same God of Elijah and Elisha. Is here right now. He's in our midst through the Holy Spirit himself. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? There's a power that is there for us. A wisdom that is there for us. And we can devote ourselves to it with confidence. In full assurance of faith. Yes, no matter how gloomy or grim or how despairing it may seem right now. Or how despairing it has felt in months past. The power and the wisdom of God have never once stopped. He is devoted to us through his word. The word which became flesh. And my friends, we are given the opportunity to devote ourselves to him this morning. Have you answered that call? Have you answered the call of God that is before you in your life? I pray this morning that the Spirit would move upon you and that you would answer that and bear the marks of a true disciple. Let us pray.